Rick Rothschild, very, very happy that you're here. Uh, certainly during the pandemic, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing for me to have such a celebrated film director, art director. Um, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'm fortunate to be here. It's not easy to leave one country and come to another. So how, how, how is it that you're here, that, that we've, we, we're fortunate, but how is yeah, this yeah. happening during this? So behind uh, all of this is an attraction that I've been working on now for almost four years, uh, partially because of COVID. It's gone out to four years and beyond uh, with Chimlong in uh, southern China. Uh, and this major new attraction requires some uh, media uh, recording and location recording and so forth. And the Mac uh, animation team and the Mac media team are supporting all of our media efforts for this attraction. So it was time to get on with production and it just worked out that this was the time to come do it. How cool was that? Great opportunity for us to have someone so celebrated with such a great history in the whole media world, not only in the amusement park world, but the media world. Um, that you would come over and work with our guys. They can, they can watch how. I don't want to. I don't want to praise you completely, <laughs> but you're, you're, you know, one of the gurus of these big giant screen uh, film uh, uh, products. Right. Well, I have to say that the feeling is mutual. Uh, I like working with people that are passionate, know what they're doing, and certainly the the, the Mac team overall. Uh, is filled with extraordinary talent and um, devotion. So it's I think been a lot of fun. I think you'll know um, that we, we always feel, we feel like we are at the center of the planet right here because it's where we work. We're given unbelievable support from the Mac family mm -hmm. to do everything we can. And he's Michael Mac, who leads us all and guides us all, is testing us. Do it. Just which... Which brings me to yourself. You started. You started in theatre, and and I I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that when you after your studies that you were um, I think in Minneapolis, and and then I heard you say I could go east mm -hmm. or west. Yeah, depending on how the camera is, and and I just thought, oh my god, the whole. That our whole world that we're living in, in sort of virtual entertainment, in you know, digitalized, could have been completely changed by your decision. No, you're right. And I, I had no idea in making the decision that I would end up doing what I've ended up doing and the career that I ended up having. I don't think anybody normally I think it's, does. For me, it's mind-blowing <laughs> to think of the decision that you made, left or yeah. right. Yeah. And, and, and you've worked in the biggest certainly the biggest company in the world, doing the most innovative uh, products. I'm thinking, what if you'd gone to New York and just stayed in the theater? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a part of what took me back to California was I'm from California. But that was certainly not the principal reason that I made the decision. The principal reason I made the decision was, as you alluded to, to me, New York meant theater, which is what I'd spent my early uh career uh, working in and studied in while I was in university. And so the choice was, do I move and pursue professional theater in some form or another, 
Or do I go back to California, which is more the base for other media, for television, for film? And I decided that I wanted to explore that broader opportunity, which took me back to California. And by no means did I go immediately with the idea I was going to work for Disney. In fact, before I came back to California, I have several rejection letters that are sitting somewhere in a drawer. I read that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I mean, with respect, uh, please accept my respects when I say um, that you're from theater. You were a tech, uh, tech manager in uh, the dinner theaters. Yeah. Um, I did find a link between us. We met briefly earlier. Oh. And yeah. uh, those, um, those dinner, dinner theaters, um, I did come to them. Um, a long time ago, because I, I worked in Ice Capades. Oh yeah. The owner of Ice Capades, Tom Scallon, owned your uh, owned the dinner theatres as well. After you, right? I think you uh, and in 1989 he bought them, and I did come. Oh, so I saw I so saw some funny. of you know maybe a bit belated, <laughs> but I saw some of your work. Yeah. yeah. But then, um, with respect, why a man who has educated in sort of live theatre? Right. Why would you think that you could take on, because you didn't have a history in, of studying film, and, and not only would you become one of the leaders in the industry, but how, why would you think that you would go to, back to California to do something that you hadn't done before when you were already very well educated right. to go to New York? Well, Fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, I think the, the thing that took me back to California, as I say, was to look at what might be opportunity. But one goes back with a notion you have to support yourself. You have to find a way to make a living. So I looked to theater even when I went back to California. I went to UCLA as a, as a teaching graduate assistant in part because it was the opportunity to get my feet back into California, into the theater, UCLA, where I went, has a tremendous relationship with the industry, not only the theater industry, but the industry at large. And I actually didn't finish the MFA program because I found the opportunity to start making those connections and ultimately left the university and started working. And I was working with designers. And the, one of the key designers I worked with was doing theater. He was doing television. He was doing commercials. And I was his assistant. And so that began to give me more opportunity to, to explore these broader fields. One thing led to another, and ultimately through some work that I had done with him uh, for several years on a major project, led me to connect with someone who, in talking, said, so what are you going to do now that this project's over with? And I said, well, I'm going to go back and continue to freelance in California again in Los Angeles. And they said, well, you are... You may not know this, but you we've gotten to know you. This was a big vendor that I worked with and scenic vendor and so forth. And they said, we work a lot with Disney and you are a, a Disney person. You may not know it. And I said, I don't know it because I have letters of rejection sitting in my drawer. So obviously, <laughs> you know something I don't know. Um, and they said, no, 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 we, we know somebody. And so I, I guess that's the first time. Why I are really, you a Disney person? Why were you at that point I a Disney think, person? I think they saw a combination of my uh, clarity in organization, raw design skills, passion for what I did. And um, they also knew this was specifically about Imagineering, which back in those days was not called Imagineering, but it was called right. Walter Elias Disney. It was named after Walt, and it was called Wet Enterprises. 
And they had a lot of work. This was a studio that did the all the way back to the early dark rides at Disneyland. They had a connection with with Disney. So I think they saw in what I was as a as a raw young talent the the idea that I had this ability to work with a lot of different technologies, understand both the left brain and the right brain side of the business, if you will, um, the creative side and the technical side. So I think that's what set them up to saying you should go talk to somebody there, which I did, and I walked out with a job. Reading a, reading a few things about about you, um, it seems to me your whole beginning of your career seems like perfect timing, perfect place, perfect moment, and someone spotted you and headhunted you with a dream. Mm-hmm. Maybe not with a clear vision, but this guy, maybe, maybe not sure what, what he's going to do, but he's going to do something. Right. And it just seems to me that uh, it's sort of destiny. Well, I certainly learned through my career, I think most people would say that in the business, in any part of the business, the broad entertainment industry, let alone the theme park industry specifically, that you have to have passion, you have to have talent, and then you got to have some luck. Yeah, because there we all know people uh, through our years who are passionate, talented people and just didn't have the quite luck and just never got that opportunity. We're given that opportunity. Yeah. So those three things, and I guess I started with at least the first two, mm-hmm. and then you know, baseball, theme parks, been good to me. Yeah, I mean, so. uh, I mean, you came into uh, had they just had they just. Had Disney just created Imagineering as you came into it, right? Well, they, they were, it was going, I wouldn't say it was created Imagineering because Walt had started Wet Enterprises when he went to do Disneyland back in 1953, 54. He, he incorporated a small group that was separate from the studio, specifically funded by he and his brother. Um, they, they created this as they were launching Disneyland to make sure that financially they were separated. That company was separated from the studio. So right. one didn't take the other one down, if you will. And so Wet Enterprises had been that very small creative organization that Walt started and had been responsible for Disneyland and then for Walt Disney World. So when Walt passed away, which was in 65, um, the goal at that time of the company became Epcot, quietly in the background, uh, for the theme park side of things, because that was the last great idea and vision that Walt had for doing something, and really was the reason that he acquired the property in Florida, was not simply to put the Magic Kingdom there, but to create this city of the future. So... Part of his legacy left to the Imagineers, who back in those days were known internally as Imagineers. It's a coin phrase that Walt coined and all of that. Um, They uh, began to focus on, well, what does that mean? After they opened in 72, they opened the, or 71, they opened the the Walt Disney World. And so this was through the mid-70s everything started to focus on what, how are we going to do Epcot? We've got the land down there. That was the vision. And they had gone through design development. And by the time I had my interview and, and, and reason for being hired, they knew, although they had not publicly announced, 
but they knew they were going to do Epcot. And they announced the intention to do Epcot uh, in October 1978. And I was hired the day after, having had the interview a few weeks prior. Literally the day after, I was right? literally the, the gentleman who who I interviewed with told me, he said, we're going to publicly announce this on the 1st of October, and I will be back to you. And so on the 2nd of October, I got the call from him saying, okay, you're now ready to come to work. And it was specifically on Epcot. Well, the company of, of Imagineering, or WED back in those days, was about 400 people, just, just around 400 people. Over less than... 18 months, it grew to over 3,000 people. So, and that was all due to two things. Epcot, number one, and then they also uh, took on developing and producing uh, Tokyo Disneyland, which was running a simultaneous track. Right. So you can imagine that to organize, build up huge numbers of people, you know, take a special effects group that might have had literally four people in it, when I was first arrived, and these four people were were Imagineers who go all the way back to doing the original effects, uh, special effects for the Haunted Mansion with for Walt and with Walt. So there were these masters of these disciplines, but small numbers of people. And suddenly these huge design tasks and huge production tasks. So that's what I came into how, most of that time. I, I, I read that you, you worked with teams of, of four people, which then became hundreds of people, or 120 or, right. or more. And, and my, my life and business has been working with uh, artists and artistic people. And I was thinking, how, how is it for you when you're leading a team, a, a small team, and then because of the need, because of the exponential need that you grow it up, how how do you control? Because their their creativity is what you want them for, which is their freedom of thought, and and sometimes it's difficult to structure these people. Right, they don't work from eight till six. That you know sometimes they'll work all through the night, but they maybe sleep at all late. How is it working when as your team is building and you've got these crazy but super talented people, and yet? As you say, you're a great organizer, respected for that. How do you cope with that? Well, I would say, first of all, that the opportunity that was extended to me from the time I first went to Imagineering, um, some of what happened there was mentoring. And I, I think that company at that time, it was consistent with all the personalities that were basically within that 400 I talked about. Um, they all knew that there were a large number of, of newbies <laughs> and right. there was a lot of training the Disney way and mentoring and all the rest of it that was there. And thankfully these people were extraordinary at doing that, whether they were a particular creative talent, a particular engineering talent, whomever it was, there was a communal spirit. We talked earlier, you, you mentioned the Mac family. Imagineering at that time still was very much a family organization yeah. because Walt was I was going to ask like you that. that question when you joined did you still feel although he was no longer right. there did you feel you were working oh, for totally. Walt and the spirit of Walt was was in the walls No there was no question I mean to the point I mean obviously of many of the people that we had the opportunity as as, as we we all who came in at that time long later became known as the Epcot babies um, all of us had the opportunity to suddenly 
meet people who, as kids, for the most part, we'd gone to theme park, the theme park and seen the Haunted Mansion or Pirates of the Caribbean. And suddenly I'm making Exitensio, who created Pirates of the Caribbean and wrote the song that we all sing. And it's like, oh, my God, these are... These, I had no idea these people really existed. There were some people, I think, that came into the organization and knew way more about Disney. I just knew the effect of Disney on me as a child and as a young adult. But suddenly, all these people, like, you did that? Wow. And now yeah. I'm sitting here, and I'm learning from you. I get to work with you. I'm working beside you. Um, it was an extraordinary opportunity. But they were gracious and very familial in their focus on how to do a project. And I guess that... It ties back to sort of the collaborative process, which was fostered there, I, and Walt fostered it. Um, he fostered it from the standpoint, you know, there's a bunch of conjecture about why he said, you know, we don't put names. You know, yes, movies, everybody's name is listed. There's credits, all this. Disneyland, there's one name. It's Walt Disney. And, and I don't want people to be focused on, I just want people to enjoy the experiences. So you come into a culture where, in a sense, at that time, you're having all this great opportunity to work as a creative uh, individual with all these wonderful people on these wonderful projects, but you also know that you're behind sort of a wall <laughs> yeah. that is inside this ball that is Imagineering and is inside the ball that is Walt Disney. How, is it, how, how easy in those days um, was it to get things done? You know, when you have a dream. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the bigger you get, it, the harder it is to... Totally, to... totally. And that goes back to the question you asked sort of, for many of us, and for me certainly, how I moved into the role that I, that I followed for many years in Disney. It certainly didn't, I wasn't hired to do what I ended up doing there right. by any means. Um, what I was hired to do is be a coordinator, and what I ended up being is a director. And so how does that transformation happen? Well, like I say, part of it was opportunity. Part of it was people recognizing in me the reason they should give me opportunity. And then tremendous amount of trust, mentoring, and permissiveness to screw up. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things early on that we all experienced in creating Epcot and in, in working Imagineering was you, nobody intended to screw up. You were inventing the future. You were doing things that this nobody is what had I done before. A, this is a, a bit uh, mind-blowing because it, it's shaping the world of entertainment. Uh, That's in right. those days at Disney, Epcot, uh, the Dis it was shaping everyone's impression on yeah. the planet yeah. of entertainment. And you were there working in the yeah. office creating and, and, and I have to praise... Did you, did you realize that when you were looking at... No, your, I really didn't. I mean, I, I, I became... And I... I have to say, I, I, I think I've come to understand why, but my, one of my greatest mentors there and lifelong friends, and sadly he's passed away now, is Marty Sklar. And Marty was, at the time, the creative head of Imagineering, became the president of Imagineering for many years. And one of the things that Marty was masterful about, I think, was recognizing in people talent and right. what that talent was. And he also recognized that um, how you put groups of people together was really important. That you, yeah, the dynamic. You, you can't just pez, okay, I've got 16 designers and 14 engineers and whatever, and I need an engineer and, a, and you just sort of pez off the top 
and little PIS machines, and, and you just throw those people together and they work. No. It's no different than when you cast a movie or you cast a show. You're not only casting your performers, but normally you are also casting all your design team and all the rest of it. It's selecting a group of people that ideally, when you bring them all together, have the ability to collaborate and work with each other. Because you're, I think that's one of the things I learned early on, too. And I, it probably goes back to theater, because I love theater for its collaborative nature. Um, and I experienced sort of that family where a group of people come together, there's tremendous collaboration, and you birth something. And Imagineering was like that on steroids. Um, and a lot of, interestingly, a lot of people that came in at the time, creatively, not all, but a lot of people that came in with me also had theatrical experience. And I think they were chosen and brought into the company exactly for that reason, that there was, a, there was an understanding that Theater people, that's the way you do things. It isn't just one person. It's oh, generally it, a collaborative process. Theater people know how to, how to extract emotions and share an emotion. Mm -hmm. But I, because that's, that's my job, live theater, whether it's on, on a stage or on a circus ring or on ice. But doing it in a, on a film, I think, is uh, a magic unbeknown to me. Um, but you've crossed over from that. And not only have you crossed over, you've excelled at it. And, and I think it's, uh, it's hugely admirable how somebody else saw it and then nurtured it. Yeah, and, and not only nurtured it, but sat me down at times and said, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you've gone over the line on this one. Yeah. And you need to know how. So you were talking about earlier about like, you know, just working with people. And I think the exuberance sometimes of, of blind passion and youth will sometimes, you're so focused on what you want to get done yeah. that you sometimes um, um, don't necessarily find the right way to work with people. And I yeah. learned that, and I was given the opportunity to... You studied, to, psych, uh, was it so, uh, psychology or something? Because somehow... Yeah, yeah. You're, <laughs> because yeah. It, somehow it is working with people's psychology. Because it's you have totally to, that. You have to get the best out of each person. Every person. And... Um, the A-type and the B-type personality, I'm obviously a very A-type personality, and a lot of Imagineers, a lot of creative people are very B-type personality. Mm. And so not only working, pardon me, to work with all the personalities, but also to, to your point earlier of drawing, you know, getting out from someone what's in their head, which it may be the most brilliant idea. Some people are more than willing to throw it at you without you even asking. There's right. others that it just sits in there, and unless you can help bring it forward and get it out, um, you will maybe miss a tremendous opportunity. So all of that was going on. Um, you know, I, my, my Epcot years were really taking me and um, giving me opportunity and asking me to fulfill a role and take on responsibility and grow with those roles I was given. And then post Epcot, because of my success, which I didn't recognize as much as maybe others, they started saying, oh, well, we see this in you, so now we're gonna give you more responsibility. We're gonna ask you to start taking on more creative leadership of teams in the early stages and develop things. And so that became a part of my next steps with right. Disney. Um, what was your first project in, in Epcot then? Were you, were you working on one particular? Also? Well, very quickly after I, I left being the coordinator, because I, 
I truly, I worked as the departmental coordinator. Most coordinators were brought in on projects or pavilions or whatever, but I was a departmental coordinator, I think the only one, and it was for the lighting, the special effects, the video, the audio, the animation, and the show programming teams. What I came to understand why they were grouped together, because they are the soft storytelling group. There's the architecture and all the other people that do the environmental design, all that, to me, is the hard storytelling. They're creating the environment. The, this, these groups, without them, the actual heart of the storytelling, the soft storytelling, wouldn't occur. You wouldn't hear anything. You wouldn't see anything. There'd be no special effects. There'd be no lights to see anything by all the rest of that. And um, so I helped get those departments organized with this massive growth that I mentioned you about and realized that I had nothing to do after about a year because I'd sort of helped all, right. of the, all the departments get organized. And fortunately, I'd already gained one mentor there who was one of the um, animators, Waithel Rogers, who was one of the early or original um, anim animatronic animators, and before that had been at the studio as an animator. And he recognized something in, in me, I guess. And so I ended up having an interview about a year after I started there, coincidental with this I'm running out of things to do stage, um, with a man named Randy Bright. And Randy had just taken the role. He was a writer uh, for a number of years at Imagineering. He'd taken the role as the lead writer for all the script development, all the story development for Epcot. And he, I remember he, he offered me the opportunity to work with him. This was just before Christmas time in 79. And he said, um, here's what I'm taking on, and I know I'm going to be overwhelmed, and I'm really sorry I don't have a job description. I just know I'm going to need somebody, and my sense is I need somebody to work with me, not as a writer, not fully creatively, but somebody who can bridge that gap or that that." difference that exists between the creative and the implementation side of our process. And you have shown yourself and people have come to understand that you have that in you. You have that T-type personality, that left brain, right brain kind of thing, which was very true. Um, yep. And uh, he said, but I'm really sorry, I don't have a job description. But go home for the weekend, think about it. It was like, go home for the weekend. And it was like, I have the opportunity to go work for a gentleman who's in this extraordinarily creative role, doing all of this exciting work, and he's just given me the opportunity to go to work for him and then figure out what my job's going to be. Why would I not want to do that? <laughs> but, so that led me to ultimately, within about six months after that, one of his major uh, writing uh, uh, projects to begin with before he took this much larger role was the, the idea and the concept for what became the American Adventure at Epcot. Right. And that's where theater and me and his needs cross paths again, because it's the biggest, longest animated uh, animatronic show Disney yeah. ever did. It's 30 plus minutes long, and it's in a theater. And it was like, I just was like the little the little bug to the lamp. It was like, this really interests me. <laughs> you didn't get stung. No. And so that that ultimately led to the the needs of the project needing a director. It had art directors, it had engineers, it had architects, it had all of the cast and crew. 
in the traditional sense of a theater or a film. Right. It didn't have a director. It even had a writer, Randy. But that's all he could contribute because he was so busy with everything right. else. Right, yeah. So the team, actually, back to the team again, um, some of the, the higher-level uh, key people in the team recognized that the day-to-day questions that needed to be answered that nobody could really answer um, needed to be addressed. So the team, project manager... Uh, came to Marty, who was Randy's boss, and Randy, and said, "We really need this position." And no, no, um, you know, in deference to you, Randy, and and so forth, you can't do it because you've got all this other work to do, and we shouldn't be bothering you with all of this kind of stuff. But we need somebody that can do that. And I'd already been working on this project for him, and I was like the little Dutch boy. Whenever there's a problem, I was looking for where the leaks were. So they said, Rick we feel could fulfill that kind of role because you've already got trust in him. You already, he's working with you, but he could become more of that day-to-day kind of person. Nobody said director yet or anything else. It was like, so that idea went to, to Marty Scalar and Marty and Randy talked and Marty felt very much as did Randy that that made a lot of sense. So we had this conversation with them saying, we want you to take this extended role on, but we're trying to figure out what to call you. And I'm from the theater, and I go, You're, you need a director. Call me whatever you want. <laughs> but Just put Marty, me goes, Marty goes, well, we can't call you a director because the, the art director has been forever in Imagineering the lead on most projects, and you're not an art director. Right. And I said, you're right. I'm a director. That's what you're asking me to do. And so ultimately, Marty, the greatest wordsmith uh, that, that Disney ever knew, I think, so we're going to call you a show producer. Now, they've never had a show producer before there either. Right. But he said that will be sort of acknowledging the, the responsibility you have, and it won't piss anybody off because we didn't give you this art director because you're not an art director and everybody knows you don't draw and all that kind of stuff. And I go, okay, most of them come from the theater and from film, and they know this other thing, but whatever you, as you said, want to call me, call me that. So that led me then through the next three-plus years while I was doing that role for the American Adventure. First ever show producer, no? Yeah. Right. So. Are, are titles, in, in, in back in those days of Disney, and, and my impression of um, corporate America is, is, is very competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you have to succeed on a daily basis, is my, my impression. But are titles, and, and uh, is that, was that important in those days to actually establish yourself so you have authority to carry something well, we all, through. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we all remember, you and I, of the age we are, when there weren't emails and communication went in a company with a thing called memos. Yeah. <laughs> and the mail room that delivered memos twice a day and delivered all the other mail, and that that was the way we communicated with each other. So Marty issued a memo <laughs> with Randy saying Rick is taking on this role. And it was announced across Imagineering because it was a big deal to sort of acknowledge that this show was going to take and have this need, which was great. And, and the description was very minimal, (laughs) just like Randy's job description. This one was pretty minimal, but it said, you know, we'll help lead the team and work with Randy. And so to answer your question further about six months later, or maybe less than that, Another gentleman, Barry Braverman, who'd been working with Tony Baxter, was a great designer for many yep. years, just retired a few years ago from Disney, 
was working on the Imagination Pavilion, and Marty decided with, with I guess, Tony that, that it needed a show producer. But it wasn't my role, interestingly enough. As time went on, show producers became a thing in Imagineering, and it was not the role, which ultimately I gained the title because right. I, was, I was adamant about eventually separating our show directors, our directors, and their show producers, their producers. Right. But the amusing part of this, and the reason I brought this up, is that the memo came out from Marty announcing Barry taking on this role as show producer for Imagination, working with, with Tony. And when he got to describe what Barry's job was, he said, Barry will be taking on a similar role uh, for Tony and for the Imagination Pavilion that Rick has been le- Rothschild has been leading on the and that was the job description. There you go. He's going to do what he did. <laughs> so um, no, I think it was more like the teams understood organically that if there was uh, a need, the team would find a way to raise its hand or find a way to fill that need to make sure that all the bases were covered, that all the internal questions were answered, that there was direction, that there was focus. And it just got done. And uh, the whole time I think Epcot was being done for pretty much everybody that was there, none of us had the idea. I think most of us that came into the company had an idea that when Epcot was over, okay, done, off we go. Where do we go next? Not that we were there to become longtime employees of the Disney company at all. Right. Um, because it really was focused on this is like such great work. We're really having a great time. We really love what we're doing. We love working with each other. We love the product we're creating. And that's what we're here for. Were you a, were you a, um, have you, or now, or are you an amusement park geek? Do you, are, are you, hmm. do you, are you interested in amusement parks? You're working in China Long. You know Europa Park. Obviously, your history in Disney. Yeah. But there are, there are some people that are so sort of, um, self-involved with what they're doing, their projects. I'm just having a great time doing what I'm doing. And the roller coaster doesn't necessarily... What's your interest in amusement parks? Uh, Somewhere in the middle. I would not consider myself a a foamer, as the term goes, um, about theme parks. I love entertainment. I love seeing what other people are doing. So obviously as I was beginning to have the opportunity to work with Disney in a theme park, I knew it was incumbent upon me to learn more about it. The company also, by the nature of the position that they'd given me, encouraged and dragged me and allowed me to gain knowledge. So it was really, I guess, more my insatiable interest in learning about things. So to answer your question about my knowledge of theme parks, it's more about the, for me at least, the opportunity to see what other people are doing, um, learn from what they're doing, but all the the minutia that some people go through to even studying, you know, within Disney, every last little thing and where all the hidden Mickey's are and all that stuff. I, I'm not one of those kind of people, right. actually. Um, I'm more focused on what's going on and what the opportunity is for creating something that isn't going on yet. Can that's be. what, that's what, like you say, <laughs> I, I see it. I get inspired. I mean, what inspires you? Because when you're, when you're working on things that haven't been done before yeah. and you're, you're reshaping the future, um, what, what, what can inspire you? What, what are you inspired? Because I, I, I guess you're just as inspiring today 
or inspirable, if that's a word, as you were 30 years ago? Well, I have a story that I like to, to, to tell that comes from being older and looking back to like, you know, you don't see the path forward, but once you've got out there and you look back, you go, oh, I can see how this connected to that, to this, to that. It all makes sense. But going forward, you didn't realize what the next step was going to be. Right. And, and early on, as a kid, one of the things that I love, I mean, I grew up in sort of the country of Southern California. I was in a ranch. I grew up on a ranch, and the nearest neighbor was a mile and a half away. And my, my the number of, of childhood friends that I had in early childhood were minimal because there were very few kids and we were spread out. No artists in your family? Um, more engineers um, uh, and and some artists. But again, that T-type thing, right? right? I've got architects, I got engineers, I got an uncle who was a, was a renowned artist. So yeah, a little bit of everything. Right. Um, but I spent most of my time as a kid when I look back in my head. Yeah. And because there was nobody else around, so I entertained myself. And you entertain yourself by creating all sorts of worlds that you can live in. <laughs> sort of psychotic, but... And I had trees in our yard, and each tree was a different world. Even before I'd gone to Disneyland and realized that there were Adventureland and so forth, I had a tree that was the space tree, and I had... And I would literally climb into these different trees, and I had different friends, and I had different worlds, and I mean, I just sort of lived in a fantasy world. Um... And I also love puzzles. I was an insatiable puzzler, physical puzzles, puzzles like we put on together with pictures. And I love putting models together and building things and working with my hands, right? Now, I've just described to you what I ended up growing to do as an adult. It, well, <laughs> after, after, after you've described, described it, I'm, I'm quite happy that Disney found you. <laughs> Better, better than a mental institution, I guess. <laughs> right, no, but um, I mean, you, well, you, you started out as a set builder, set designer right, as well. Right, But uh, that's a great, uh, that was a great evolution of your, of your passion and takes you further. But then you get into film, digitalization. Mm. Not from, you didn't study it. Not and, at all. Um, and, uh, and you become one of the, uh, maybe I'm wrong because I'm, I'm, I, I'm the first to profess that I'm not hmm. uh, educated in this world, but you come one become one of the founding fa fathers of the giant screen film. Well, I have to again owe you know a lot to the opportunity that uh, Disney and particularly the American Adventure, which was this first attraction I worked on, um, and Randy, who I was working with, um, I got to know people like. Art Cruikshank and some others who were uh, like premier <coughs> behind-the-scenes individuals in special effects and in film. I remember uh, going over to the Academy and and v watching a uh, demonstration that Art had organized of all the different film formats because they were, uh, Epcot was trying to figure out for different things we were doing what's the best format. And even discussions of what's the right frame rate. So suddenly I'm like learning all this stuff about that. And did they give you the chance to learn? Or did they just say, hey, you're no, I no, mean, no, 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 no. no. Because they could have been forgiven to say, that's not your world. No, 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 no. I was brought into it and then given the opportunity to <clears throat> learn it. And 
Um, so I'm learning about all these like eccentric and weird formats, VistaVision and all these other kinds of stuff. And, and I had the opportunity because of American Adventure, one of its main features is it's a huge rear projection screen with 70 millimeter projection and, and the whole theatrical sets and how the two work together. And suddenly I'm thrown into having to learn sort of the basics of that, um, I was, I just sort of took the initiative, but was figuring out there were sequences where we were doing multiplane sequences. So I was learning all about multiplaning and how that all worked. Creating multiplanes on panels that were bigger than the machines that they'd been doing multiplanes on for years that UbiWorks built for the animation. We were coming up with new ways to do that. So I'm working with, with all these really knowledgeable people, but it was more like, well, how do we, how can we do this? And, and then learning from that. Um, and I guess it's just that opportunity that happened to come with that show led me down this immediate connection with a whole bunch of stuff about media and about film. And I, you can't do it without learning about it. So I did my best to, to take advantage of all these incredible people. Um, and I learned from that and that, and then, you know, I, early on, I was given an opportunity to, to help develop a Circle Vision film for Expo 86 that had nothing to do with Disney, but they came to Disney and go do this. And I was the producer on that and worked with a director who was a film director. And so it just sort of one thing went to another, but I always had this um, interest in technology. I came with sound. That was the one thing I knew a lot about because I'd done a lot of sound work in the theater. Mm-hmm. I loved doing sound work for theater. So when I got to Disney, suddenly like, how do you create a soundtrack um, with 35 animated characters? How do you, how do you, I came quickly to understand that the success of an animated figure starts with a voice in the same way that, that animation has known for years that you, you start to think about a character, you start to get a voice associated with that character, a talent associated with that character very early on. And that the character and the voice become Okay. You know, one. So I ended up uh, getting into, you know, directing. And again, we're back to working with the theatrical tools that I had. But we were also editing in digital for the first time. So I learned all sorts of things. And it was like, well, this is a really cool tool. And, and I became infamous for probably the most vocal slicing and dicing to put together the perfect performance. Because I figured as I was listening to all these humans, you get a lot of great recordings, but there's a little bit of this and a little bit of this one, and a little bit of this, and put them all together, it's even more sensational. Right. Any actor would go, you totally pushed me aside. But it was like, I was so focused on, that is what will make an animated figure better. If, if the voice doesn't absolutely drive you, you can't listen to the, to the show with all the voice track and, and be hit emotionally, then it's never gonna happen with the animated figure, no matter how cool and interesting and good the figure is, it won't. And we were talking about human figures. We're not talking about, you know, fantasy yeah. figures or whatever. I mean, I was dealing with Ben Franklin and Mark Twain and history figures out of history from Will Rogers to, to common, um, ordinary, you know, human beings in different points in history and so forth. So it was, I was, I was really focused on learning that. So that was another piece of like, how do we do that? And, and how do we learn from that? So all of that, just one step at a time, people went, oh, you have this sort of interesting 
ability to push all this stuff together, special effects and lighting and, and figures, and you figured it all out in the first show that you did. Well, I didn't know how else to, to go about what I was trying to do, but to make a good show. But the result of that gave me a lot of beginning tools. And then it was just continually doing that. And so, like I said, in some earlier conversations we had, sitting in the theater in 1982 before we opened, looking at this projection, which was a 70 millimeter projection that then ultimately became twice the size of a 70 millimeter projector uh, with all sorts of other projectors and everything we could do back in those days with no video, no video projection, blending, all those kind of things that we do today, going, wouldn't it be really cool if we could do that with video someday? <laughs> well, here we are. Yeah. So some of it is is just this continued sort of thinking about what would be really cool. Could you ask something about, you know, how do you how do you sort of move to the the the, the next idea or whatever? And to me it's um, one of the great examples of that is Soarin' Over California, which was the big screen, the big dome, mm -hmm. and that whole idea. Well, that was really like, I was a kid, if there was my favorite attraction at Disneyland and my favorite attraction as an animated movie, it was Peter Pan. I, and remember, I climbed trees. I love to be up yeah. off the ground. I love flying. So that's what drove me to think about, as we were talking about, how can you do these different attractions about California, was like, well... Uh, why don't we do something that takes people and puts them in that kind of really hot air balloon, cool kind of environment? Are you always up there taking uh, when when everything's being filmed? Oh yeah, you're always no, up there on every. Uh... I, when we did uh, um, the most recent, well, we have several in production, and one that'll open this fall. But the most recent that's open is the the flyover Iceland up in mm -hmm. Reykjavik, and I think I kept track of our helicopter hours, for example. And I logged about 110 hours. Wow! Um, in, a, in with my directing partner, I mean, we work. I mean, and it's going to be what a seven-minute? Uh, it's a eight and a half minutes. Eight and a half. Yeah. So, the, and I would say the one we're doing now, which we're, we'll open this fall, um, about the Southwest and and the Wild West of of the U.S. Um, again, uh, uh, eight and a half minutes is probably similar in the number of hours. And you're you're behind the camera on uh, every well, single flight. The, we're all behind the camera because the camera's out in front attached to the yeah, helicopter. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're on, you're <laughs> yes. on the, uh, you're on but, the uh, helicopter. Or, yeah. 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 And I, I, I have a directing partner, Dave Mossop, that I work with for that, and a DP and a pilot. So that's the four of us generally in the helicopter that do all of that. So, um, but I guess all of that, you know, and learning about frame rate and learning when we moved into digital, it was like, Everybody had to start learning more about digital. So it wasn't like I was no. trying to catch up. We were all learning it together. Yeah. So I guess in some ways, a lot of what I under, came to understand about film and, and animated figures and the technologies of those times, and again, go back to the fact that I love technology and I, and I love putting things together. So I, I have a brain that can look at um, technology and at least come to understand the principles of it enough to be able to work with the engineers and the technicians and the, the, the rest of the team that's involved in that and be able to can be conversant. That's the other thing I think is you have to be really conversant in to be able to drive people, not over the edge, <laughs> no. but, to, but to drive the team or sections of the team to, to, to reach as far as reasonable. And I've also learned over the years of a lot of people who like working with me and, 
and enjoy working with me multiple times have, have been very open and honest about the fact that you really push me. You push me to the end, but you never push me in an unreasonable way beyond because you understand enough to say, well, what if, and you may not know all the science behind it or the engineering behind it, but you have enough of an ability to at least push me for creative reasons for what you're trying to accomplish. So that's just sort of who I am. I don't, I always thought everybody did that when I first got there and I realized that everybody has their thing right. and yeah. Yeah. So, but then, um, 31 years with Disney, 31 years with Disney. Yeah. What, what, what made you, what, did you have dreams or ambition uh, uh, that you couldn't uh, that you couldn't realize working at Disney? I think it was as much um, I'd reached a stage in my life where uh, uh, I was either going to stay until I was done, yeah, <laughs> um, or or look elsewhere and and look for the opportunities beyond Disney. And I guess I. To be honest, there the company has grown a lot. Mm. Um, you know, I went, I was there before what was referred to as the Eisner and Wells era. I, I was there through um, the early Iger era, um, and I just saw the company personally becoming a bigger and bigger corporation. Right and. And in a way, losing some of that familiar family, you talk about the Mac family. Yeah. It, it definitely had, was three steps of separation from Walt. And <laughs> yeah, that's and, where we're, we're lucky that we have. Yeah, totally. We are, we all, everyone has an opportunity to present their ideas to the mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. and, and the Mac family will empower anybody right. if they have a cool idea. And that the family believe that we can realize it and change, make the guests day better. Right. Whether it's an emotional thing, whether it's something like that, and and we're we are absolutely in the middle of that right now. I just wondered when you were at Disney, like because my experience, I worked closely with Michael Mack. He brought me here. Right. He's the CEO of uh, Europa Park and the Mac Animation, Mac Media, Mac Mac, the umbrella, the umbrella, and um, and. Uh, He's always sort of saying to me, we have to evolve. We have to push forward. We have to, you know, just, just where, where can we go with new ideas and stuff like that? Did you get that? Did you get people coming to you today, uh, coming to you in those days saying, we have, we have to evolve? I mean, you were well, evolving. Yeah. And, and I think the company continues to evolve, looking at it now from the outside for 11 years, maintaining friendships through the, all of that, of course, with people that continued there and so forth. And just looking at the product that's coming out, there is still a devotion to that uh, creative exploration and and where to go next. I think what I came to understand was I liked working without so much uh, layers of organization, layers of structure, and I yeah. think that's that's the the big tension that comes between creative uh, output from a, from a creative organization and also a corporation and what corporations, right, which are soulless. Hmm. Corporation is just an entity and, and groups of people that come together, whether it's under a Walt Disney or a Michael Mack or, 
or a group of creative people who are are a group of human beings. And and that tension, it's interesting because the one of the reasons I talked to the gentleman who gave me my first job at Disney, he asked me, why do you want to come to work here? And I said, because I'm fascinated by what it means to be a corporation that's creative. Because I've never worked for a corporation that's a create. I've never worked for a corporation, even more so a creative corporation. I've worked for, for in the theater. I've worked for producers that pull groups of people together and do things, all that kind of stuff. But the idea of a corporation doing something creative, I'm really interested in how that works. Yeah. So part of it was not just I was a Disney kid and a Disney file. I really was interested. How do you incorporate? You're like me, you're creativity. having just as much fun in your job right. as the guest is actually enjoying what you're creating. Exactly. And yeah. so I would say part of what led me to decide to to move on and end up doing everything I've done, and I look back now and say, well, what I've done in the last eleven years has been so much fun, and I I wouldn't be doing it necessarily at Disney. I'd be doing some interesting things there, no question. But the unencumbered environment right. again. Smaller numbers of people. Yeah, you know the pursuit organization that I work with now for these flyover projects. There's a management of one, sort of the Michael Mack of that company, right? And then the 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 overall group that generally is responsible for doing these projects. I don't know, it's 15 people maybe right. less. And you look at that passionate people, passionate people that live look, it. Yeah. Right. And and you look at that against a corporation and you go, yep. okay, there is a difference and both have the ability to succeed and both have the ability to do great things. But for me, it was time to just in, get back to the roots in a sense of what theater was about, that group of people that get to do something really super creative. Yeah, yeah but because you're doing uh, how many sort of flyover soaring yeah. or or flyovers have you uh well, I've, I, we've 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 done five with this group. I've worked as a consultant on a few more, um, and we have one opening uh, this fall, and we have two more that are acknowledged in the pipeline, and four more after that that are you know probably within the next year are going to go into the pipeline. So right. that's a rather large. So when you quantity. do a uh, do you. Do you write the script beforehand, and and then you go and locate and find all the locations that you want? So, no, is a simple answer. We don't write a hard script. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg once said, "There's three movies that get made in the tradition of Hollywood. There's the one that writer writes. There's the one that the director directs, and there's the one the editor puts together. <laughs> sometimes, they're the same." And sometimes the process of evolution and discovery, by the time you get to the end, it's nothing like the beginning. Right. I would say our process is designed to, because we it's live action principally, it's really focused with these flyovers. We, we, we do some, some seasonal animation and some other little things that we do in the context of their business uh, model, but we're, but we're known for live action. We're known for this devotion to taking people to extraordinary, iconic locations, some that they know but have never seen the way we show them to them. And in many cases, most people have never seen what we show you. Right. Um, and so you can organize a concept 
you, obviously, we're not just like, okay, Iceland, let's go shoot Iceland. Right. There's a concept. And um, we have a story behind the concept that also tends to be the anchor of the pre-show, which we would call the chapter one of the two-part, pardon me, experience, that grounds people in what our point of view is before we then take you out and show you in an aerial experience that what reflects that point of view. Um, so we give you context in a fun and interesting way, and then we're devoted to showing you real nature. The answer then to your question is, we have an idea, we have a map, <laughs> we do a lot of research, we do a lot of scouting, we put pins on the map, we eventually de develop a structure of what we think the movie is going to look like so we can organize going to shoot it. Then, like a documentary, <laughs> uh, oh, you couldn't shoot that because the weather screwed you or you can't get a permit. In the meantime, you were flying over here and saw something you didn't even know existed. And it's like, this fits what we want to do and we're going to shoot that. So by the time you're finished, I'd say there's like, 75% of that concept that you've created to begin with, and there's 25% of interesting things that you've discovered along the way that you're continually putting together as you're doing this. Because we don't do it, it's not like a continuous movie shoot. Our shoots are seasonal. So for the purpose of obviously capturing the beauty of the seasons. So you're continually putting things together. And like on our latest one, when we get all the final scenes, then we go into, uh, Dave, my directing partner and I, go into a process of putting them together. We've had a scheme of how they go together, but I would say where we are today with the one we're about to release next fall is, Again, 75% of the, of the sequences or pieces of sequences within the larger overall experience we discovered before the last 45 days. Mm. And all the rest has been once we had everything. And some of it is like when you start to put it all together, that one that was really, we worked really hard to get and, and, it's, and it's just as beautiful as all the other ones, but it doesn't belong in a movie. So right. just like anything else that you're shooting. So ultimately, it is a creative process that does have a point of view and it does have a shooting script, but it ultimately is a, it's like writing music, I think, to a degree, and writing mm. a poem. As yeah. you get into it, you just find it and it finds itself. I think, yeah, I think in the rehearsals of a live show as well, it alters, uh, the choreographer changes it, and then some... Uh, beautiful talent from one artist does something and the director will spot it and maybe go in a different direction slightly because totally. that was totally cool. Have you, have you, have you thought about getting, you say live action or mm. have you ever thought about, you know, when, when I look at um, the big Cirque du Soleil shows and the big Vegas shows, let's say, um, have you ever um, had any ambition to get into something like a, a real... Oh, in terms of creating something like yeah, that. Yes, creation, because because they're they're using uh, a video and, and they're, uh, you know, your, your, your talents of working with people and artists. And, like, and I wondered whether you'd had any interest or ambition to ever follow something like that. I wouldn't put ambition in the category yet as much as, as interest. And 
And a lot of it is I'm a one-man band, and I, I, my wife thinks I overcommit myself because uh, I've never stopped working. <laughs> but but I, I'm reasonably good about not overcommitting myself. And um, that's hard sometimes because sometimes people will bring you something that sounds really interesting, and I'll end up either saying, I can help consult on that. I'm intrigued with helping birth that idea or get that idea on track, but I may not be the person, even though it sounds fascinating, right. to follow through on it. So You can be the show producer. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, I, I, again, I'm intrigued with the blank piece of paper, as Marty used to talk about, um, the opportunity to create something new. And so the venue is less important to me, I guess, than the subject matter at this point. Right. That's really, I guess, where it comes what out. Do you think the, what do you think the future is for amusement parks? Mm. Hmm. Because we're, you know, the roller coaster, it can't, it can't go more and more dangerous, obviously. Right. Um, so, you know, and yes, it's evolved. There's a lot of, there's a lot of your, your, you know, flying. We have one here. Um, but uh, where, what, how do you feel about the, the future, the, the, the evolution of, mm. uh, and the continued success of amusement parks? Oh, fair enough. Well, it makes me think, number one, I, I think at the time I left Disney, I had the record for replacing more of my own shows than any other person. Where, as an example, I helped create Michael Jackson and, and the 3D uh, uh, Captain I EO. saw it. Huh? I saw it. Yeah. Long time and a great deal of fun. It lasted eight years. It was done. I think when we when we when Michael Eisner asked us to think about doing something with Michael Jackson, he was open and honest that he thought it was a two to three year thing. Mm. And it ended up running eight years before it was time to move to do something else. Because you did it great. I guess, yes. Thank yeah, you. People loved it. But I also think that there is a point where I guess I'm a theater guy. Right, And so it's interesting to me because theme parks, and there are a few, obviously, in the theater. There's a few shows that go on forever and ever mm -hmm. and ever and ever. And so there are a few shows in theme parks that go on forever and ever and ever. And, and you know, with the horrible fire that occurred here and the loss of something that was as dear as the attraction that was lost here and the rebuilding of it um, and bringing it back again, um, that would have remained here for probably as part of the core essence forever. It would have been difficult ever to take yeah. it out. And, yeah, and there are some of those that just sort of happen. But I truly believe that everything, you know, entropies, everything eventually runs its course. And, it's, and so part of my answer to your question about what the future of theme parks is, things that are there today all won't be there tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> Do you think but, we're in some type of competition, amusement parks, with... That mm. uh, something as as in like Netflix and Disney Plus. And, do you think we're in so we're in a, a competitive a fascinating world? thing? And and a very good friend of mine, Joe Rohde, who is world world renowned, and he and I have spent lots of time through the years together and talking as we've worked together. Um, I would say that that the environmental opportunity of just walking in Europa Park. And when something new gets added and something gets replaced and a road turns a different way and all so on. But the regardless, coming here with, uh, with your friends, with your family, uh, whatever, um, the social environment 
the the opportunity to experience the environments that you go into here are things that people I don't think will ever stop wanting to do. I don't think it's any different than some someone desiring to go visit Paris once in a while or go visit Berlin. Go or to the beach. Go to the beach. I mean, there's just, right? And so some of it is environmental. Some of it is just sort of that experience with the gestalt of that place that comes from everything that's led to it being what it is right at this moment. And some of it is just the being in a social environment. So when you get onto the subject, for me at least, of things like um, virtual reality and virtual game playing, and I, I think they all have a, a value, and I think that um, a lot of people do enjoy them. But I truly don't believe that those will replace the human desire to be, I mean, look at COVID. Look at what COVID has done to all of us of like, I just want to walk up to a friend and hug them again. Right. In fact, I just like to be in the same room or be in the same place with them again. So I think there is. Yeah, but it's really put us on. Uh, I mean, everyone, my kids, the right. uh, same age as uh, yours. It's, it's difficult to get their phone out of their hands. It's even more so difficult now because they haven't been able to go out. Uh, totally. But I also, I have my youngest are 18 twins, 18-year-old twins. Right. And, and I watch them. They will put the phone down if there's reason to put it down. Right. You know? Well, I took them to, with, with my wife, we, I brought them all over to Iceland, and we did, you know, two weeks of touring Iceland. The phone was down until we were back in the hotel. Right. Because there was so much that was so interesting to them physically interesting and demanding and all the rest of that. So to me, that's what gets back to the theme park. The theme park requires you to be physically involved to, if you have any ability to move through it in whatever form you move through it in, you're out of your normal environment. So I think the theme parks are, are and Tivoli probably as an example, not the sole example, of an early, you know, social place yep. in a city that was, I mean, even, even maybe you could say uh, in New York, Grand Central Park was more than just a, you know, El, uh, what was his name, Olmsted designed that park. And part of what he designed into it was discovery. I mean, it's the same stuff we're applying in theme parks. Go around the corner, go down the thing. Elevational yeah. changes, objects draw you, weenies. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on there that he was doing that encourages social and and human movement. Um, and I don't think people are ever going to stop wanting to do that. Well, I hope I hope so. What's so? What's exciting you about the future? You, Rick, Rose <laughs> Child. What's um, what are you excited about? You've got some uh, flyover movies yeah. coming in the build, but. Um, where where do you want to be? What what's yeah what it, what's exciting you about the future? When I when I decided to become sort of move from the psychology major to the theater major because I carried both of them for a while as my major, um, I think what led me to the theater degree was as much this recognition that I wanted to work on something with a group of people that the end result was to make 
bring some enjoyment, some happiness, a moment of out of your normal life and, and communal. So to answer the question you just asked, I think that's what's motivated me all my life. Mm-hmm. It's still what motivates me. So the simple answer is I want to keep doing anything that I can that allows me to do that. And I am a, an insatiable student. So these flying phones, for example, the reason I keep doing them is as much because they're fun, but they also allow me to really drill into a location, to drill into a culture, to, to understand. So does that mean being the Epcot baby I was, Epcot really affected me? Yes, it did. Yeah. If I had started working in the Magic Kingdom, I might be a different person. But Epcot, there's something about working on American history and and world cultures and, you know, all that kind of stuff that the idea of, of connecting to things that are, have substance, even if you do it in a fantastic way, it still has substance. The show we're doing right now, coming all the way back to the Chimlong show, is a complete other side of that. It is just total fantasy. Right. And I like doing those. I enjoy doing those. But if you gave me a choice between the two, I'll gravitate to the one that connects people with something in life. And not to say that fantasy sometimes can't also do that, because of course it does. It connects you with emotions. But for the most part, it's like, do I want to create simply a roller coaster for the thrill of the roller coaster? Or do I want to take you on a flight across real places in nature that is not only a roller coaster in a sense, but connects you with like, oh my God, that's real. That's there. Right. To me, I'll do the that's there one. (laughs) Well, uh, Rick, it's absolutely a pleasure for me to speak to you. And uh, as you say, we're in this (laughs) sad location of Europa Park at the moment, but very soon will be open and I hope that we get the opportunity and I can invite you to um, a beer. But we did have ah, a Weissen <laughs> beer, German, good old German beer. But cheers to the next cheers. time. And uh, I thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the opportunity and the enjoyment of talking Thanks. with you. Good luck with everything you do. Thank you, sir. Thanks. How do, how-